The following, the following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. On the day after the attack in 2001, one of the newspapers ran an amazing story about this woman who worked on the 64th floor of Tower 2. This woman could only walk with the aid of crutches. And as people were running for their lives, this woman's fellow employees tried to carry her down a flight of stairs. They tried one flight, second flight, but by the time they reached 10 flights, they just simply couldn't do it anymore. And that's when another co-worker, a man she knew only by the first name, Lewis, came up to this struggling group. And she lifts this woman onto his shoulders by himself, and he carries her all by himself. The temperature in the stairwell was at least 90 degrees. And this man, this woman says, carried me down 54 flights of stairs. He would not leave my side until I was safely inside an ambulance. As a matter of fact, she says, at around the 15th floor, a rescue worker is there and tells Lewis that the woman is now out of danger. And he suggested that he leave me there on the 15th floor and that he exit the building by himself. And don't worry about her. She'll be okay. She's out of danger here. Surely, at that point, one of Lewis's inner voices must have said, okay, I think I've done enough now. After all, no one else could have done half of what I did to save her. And here's a professional, a fireman, is telling me it's good enough. So let me leave her here and save my own life. But instead, Lewis chose to heed another voice, a voice that said, she's not safe until she's in a vehicle and taken away from this scene. And I'm not going to leave a handicapped woman in this chaotic stairwell to fend for herself. You see, the Lewis who ran from his office on the 64th floor that day was not the same Lewis who later emerged from that building. Somewhere between the 54th floor and the ground floor, is where it happened. It may not have happened on the landing of the 54th floor when he first picked the woman up and hoisted her over his shoulder. At that point, he may have been acting out of his innately kind nature. But at some point in that smoky stairwell, when his muscles started to hurt, when the heat got to him and the weight on his shoulders slowed him down more and more and hundreds of panicked people are pushing past him, running for their lives. Somewhere his instinct gave way to choice. He chose to stay with that woman at whatever cost himself. The Lewis who arrived for work that morning was a man with potential for greatness. The Lewis who emerged from the World Trade Center, sweating and aching on the verge of collapse, was in fact a great man. All over the country on 9-11 and on 9-12 and the weeks and months to follow, goodness and kindness, compassion, and love. People waiting in lines at times for over seven hours to give blood. Thousands of rescue workers risking their lives to try desperately to save a stranger. Suddenly there was no such thing as a stranger. It was a fellow, a fellow human being, a father of young children, someone's daughter. A colleague of mine was en route from London to New York during the attack. His plane was forced to land in a small town on the tip of North America called Glenwood. The town had 1,400 residents. A total of 9,000 passengers were stranded there. The whole town, the whole town, every one of them came out of their homes and joined the passengers. They brought food, 
and phones and computers for internet users. Welcome signs were put up everywhere. Everyone's home took in guests. A new family was formed in Glenwood. A family of strangers, of passengers from all different nationalities, all different languages, all different faiths, with residents of a town hardly anyone knew existed until that day. And this family of strangers became the family of man. Goodness and kindness. Love and compassion. The Lubavitcher Rebbe was once asked by a reporter from CNN if there was anything he wanted to tell the world. And the Rebbe said, if we each perform random acts of goodness and kindness, we could bring Mashiach now. The Messiah could come right now. Millions turned to God. Millions turned to prayer. The synagogues, to churches, houses of worships were filled, many with people who never attended before. Students at schools throughout the country voluntarily gathered outside their school buildings to pray, to connect to a force higher than us. Faith was restored in a land that prided itself as the land of in God we trust. A few years after 9-11, a journalist named Sheldon Dorenstein decided to track down some of the professionals who had been involved in the designing and building of the towers. Although the main architect, Minoru Yamasaki, long since died, some members of his team were still alive. And among them, there was a man by the name of Hyman Brown. Hyman Brown started out as a young apprentice under Yamasaki, and he worked his way up to become the project engineer of the construction of the World Trade Center. So after some investigating, Sheldon Dornstein was finally able to track down Mr. Brown, who had retired and was living in Israel of all places. And after Dornstein pushed for an interview, Brown acquiesced. And during the interview, he describes what a thrill it was to have been recruited for this historic project and the pride that he took in building the Twin Towers. After a while, Sheldon Dornstein asks Hyman Brown a pointed question. Can you share with us, how did you feel when you saw the towers come crashing down? As one who played a major role in designing and building them, what thought went through your mind? Brown was pensive for a moment and then said, you know, even as a kid, I love building things. Having learned in Hebrew school that God created the world, I enjoy the opportunity to play God. <laughs> if he can create, I can create. So designing huge projects and seeing them go up hundreds, thousands of feet in the air, I began to visualize myself as a godlike figure. It was a rush like, like no other. When we drew up the blueprints for the Twin Towers, we believed, if anything, built by human beings was invincible, it was those towers. We built them to withstand any force imaginable. But then on that September 11th morning, as I watched in horrified disbelief the way the first, the South Tower collapsed onto itself, and then 30 minutes later, the North Tower right with it, beyond being devastated, Something else happened to me. Even as I understood from an engineering point of view how they went down, I was humbled to my core. In that split second, it dawned on me how small we really are and how great God is. As omniscient, all-powerful, and in control as we may think we are, the truth is, we aren't. He then went on to say, I'm a Jew. 
And up until 9-11, my religious affiliation consisted of a yearly donation to the Jewish National Fund and attendance at high holiday services. But since that day, everything has changed. I realized that the best way to attach myself to the Almighty, who is truly all-knowing and all-powerful, is through the observance of his Torah and his mitzvot. And at first, it was very hard for me. I was used to always being in control and not having my life dictated by a supranational set of rules. But after learning more and gaining a deeper understanding of the commandments, I'm first beginning to comprehend the true meaning of greatness. We need to keep that sense of awakening alive today, 20 years later. There was another effect of 9-11. People felt the need to be close to one another, to cherish their families and friends so much more. Let's bring that spirit back as we mark the 20th anniversary and as we get ready for Rosh Hashanah. In the Sparrow pizza shop bombing in Jerusalem on August 9th, just a month before 9-11, 15 innocent people lost their lives. One of the victims was Shoshana Greenbaum. She is the daughter of Alan and Shifra Heyman of Los Angeles. She was a teacher here in Emek Hebrew Academy and in Valley Torah. Shoshana was an only child, and she was pregnant with her first child. During the week of Shiva, Shoshana's classmates all came together as a group. It was the first time that had seen each other in 10 years. And at the end of their visit, Shifra Heyman urged the group to stay in touch with one another. And it shouldn't be just for tragedies. But wherever they are in the world, they should treasure their friendships and hug your friends regularly, she said. Because she broke down crying, you can't hug a soul once it's left the world. So many who worked in the Twin Towers and knew their fate in their last moments of life picked up the phone and called their loved ones to say a farewell and a final I love you. In the memory of those who lost their lives on 9-11, in the memory of all those who lost their lives on all terrorist attacks and wanton murders since, let us cherish our families more. Let us appreciate every moment of every day that we spend with our children and our grandchildren, with our parents, with our brothers and our sisters, with our friends. Let us help rebuild the world of the love it lost, the love it needs, the love that makes life worth living. So as we listen to the sound of the chauffeur this year, let's recommit ourselves to this awakening. Let us commit ourselves to remember. Let us commit ourselves to fulfilling our mission as Jews, to speak up, to change the world, to make it a more godly, righteous, moral, kind, and caring world. Let us commit ourselves to put out the fire in the palace, the palace of God, the palace of man, the palace of life. Back in the summer of 2001, there was a man from New York City who traveled to Israel on business. For the purpose of this story, I'll call him Martin, although Martin was not his name. Between appointments, Martin stopped at a a pizza store, hoping to grab a bite to eat. He was a big rush. He was waiting for his next meeting, and he just wanted to pick up a slice and move on. But there was only one person working behind the counter, and it was taking a long time for each customer. And as he stood there waiting hungrily, he kept fidgeting impatiently, shifting from one foot to the other, looking at his watch every few seconds. 
So this man ahead of him online, an elderly gentleman, sees this Martin's frustration, and he says, Adoni, you look like you're in a hurry. I'm not. I got nowhere to go. I'm next in line. He's about to take my order. It's not a big deal for me to stand here for a few more minutes. So let's switch places. Go ahead of me. This way you'll get your order right away. Realizing that every minute before his next minute counted, he said, really? You sure you don't mind? No, go ahead. Go ahead, please. He said, thank you so much. You have no idea what this means to me. Martin got his slice of pizza, went back onto the street. He walked literally just a few feet when he suddenly felt this huge shockwave. And his ears rang from a deafening explosion. There was a moment of silence and then pandemonium. Sirens blaring, people running, people screaming. Martin spun around and saw that the Sparrow Pizza Shop from which he had just emerged was spewing fire and black smoke. Martin had escaped death or serious injury by just a few seconds. Overcome by this horrible tragedy and the miracle of his rescue, Martin broke down and cried. And that's when it hit him. That's when it struck him. The man in line that offered to switch places with him, he was still in the store because he switched places with me. He saved my life. I have to go back. I have to go in there. I have to see if I can help him. He hurries back to the scene of the explosion. They won't let him in, of course. And he sees as they're bringing out bodies, some alive and some not so alive. He sees ambulances and he's running from ambulance to ambulance to see. Did his friend in line make it? Did he survive? Is he amongst the living? But he couldn't find him. And as minutes went by and then hours went by, he starts going from hospital to hospital, emergency room to emergency room, until finally he finds the man in a hospital bed hooked up to intravenous tubes, seriously wounded, but thank God alive. He stayed with this man. He stayed by his bedside and made sure he received the best care until his son arrived at the hospital. He learned that the man's name was Yaakov. The next morning, Martin was happy to hear that Yaakov's condition had stabilized. An hour later, he was allowed to talk to him. Yaakov lay on his back, attached to whatever he was attached to, and his eyes were open. At first, he couldn't remember anything what Martin was explaining to him about before the explosion and being online for pizza and you helping this American businessman, it didn't occur to him that in so doing, he saved a stranger's life and also put himself in that store at that time. Martin held Yaakov's hand and he said, Yaakov, I don't know how I can ever repay you, but if you ever, ever need help with anything, anything, all you have to do is ask and I will be there for you for the rest of your life. And in a barely audible voice, Yaakov said, I lack for nothing, thank God. All I need now is a full recovery. And that depends on the one above. You go home, kiss your children, and may we only hear good news from each other. With that, Martin turned to Yaakov's son and said, listen, I'm going back to the United States tomorrow, but here's my card. Keep my card. If ever there's anything I can do, I owe your father my life. Remember anything at all. Don't hesitate to call me. The next day, Martin returned home to New York. A few weeks later, he gets a call from Yaakov's son. I'm really sorry to bother you, but we've been told that my father needs a very complicated operation and that the best place to have this type of surgery is at an American hospital in the city of Boston. At first, we didn't even consider the option of taking my father to America. We don't know a soul there. 
But then I remembered your card and your kind offer. So I thought, you know what? Let me give you a call and ask what you think. Martin could, could barely contain himself. Of course, anything for your father. Don't waste another minute. You order the plane tickets for your father, whoever wants to come with him, all on me. I'm taking care of this. And I will make all the arrangements for everything. Just fax me the details. I'll be waiting for you at the airport. So the son says, is Boston close to New York? Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Oh, so it's like from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv? Yeah, it's like Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Don't worry about it. Just come. I'll take care of you. And sure enough, from that moment on, Martin was a man on a mission. He dedicated himself to bringing Yaakov to the United States for surgery. He arranged the accommodations for Yaakov's family close to the hospital. He even consulted with various medical advisors, made the appointments with the surgeon, covering all the costs of this himself. And when the family arrived in the States, Martin did something he hardly ever did. He took off from work. He traveled to Boston to be with the family as Yaakov underwent that complicated surgery to repair the serious damage to his system. And so there he was at 8.45 in the morning, sitting with Yaakov's family in the hospital waiting room of a Boston medical center. Indeed, that's where he was on the fateful morning of September 11, 2001, when he would ordinarily have been in his office in the 101st story of the World Trade Center. That's exactly where he was when the plane hit the tower and engulfed his office in flames. Twice, twice this man was saved from death by terror, from a small act of kindness in a pizza store to a huge act of gratitude. Rewards for good deeds have a way of coming back to us. Sometimes we get to see it play out in our lifetimes in an open and revealed manner, and sometimes we don't get to see it right away. But make no mistake about it. Kindness gets paid forward. Sooner or later, it gets paid forward. Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. Stories to inspire.org.